0: I have one one practical point. Metaphysics is a difficult science. Now, I don't think it's as difficult as modern physics, uh, but the, my but my point is, you do spend your life studying it. If you become a metaphysician, you spend your life at it. It's a lot of work, and. Um, on the one hand, what I like about Aquinas is he's very realistic. It's very it's an engagement with reality. I think I think it's realistic. On the other hand, uh, reality is hard to understand. You know, so you it's not it's not we don't dom- the mind never dominates being. The mind is invited to understand being. Being is an invitation to intelligibility, yeah, but not domination. So. It's not, you know, in mathematics, uh, you can especially dominate the, the subject matter. Quantity is what we understand best and master. In metaphysics, there's always a kind of contemplation. You're always in a world that's bigger than what you can grasp, but you make progress. Okay. Second part, analogical knowledge of being, transcendentals as analogical notions for being. The metaphysical sub- study of substances and categories allows us to do two things. First, it allows us to talk about the distinctiveness of diverse beings. Why this being here is a distinct being of a given kind that is not that being there. It is a dis- it is distinct in its being and nature due to the principle of the substantial form which informs the matter. John is not Andrew because John is this substance and Andrew is that substance. Okay. Second, this metaphysics allows us to identify the distinct genre of being that are irreducible to one another. It is helpful to distinguish individual substances from their common natures, quantities from qualities, sorry, that should be qualities from quantities, relations from habits, time from place or position, actions from passions these are real distinctions in the world I mean they correspond these distinctions correspond to real ontological distinctions in the world what the metaphysics of substance taken alone does not allow us to do however is first to speak about being as something common to all substances that is to say as something that is not reducible to any particular class of substance like kangaroos or panda bears all that exist are panda bears no Being is common to everything. Nor does it allow us to discuss adequately the fact that being transcends the various categories of being. So to take the first issue, we can say that there are all kinds of diverse beings in the world around us, different kinds of substances with various properties, stars, stones, plants, trees, panda bears, human beings. But at the same time, all of them have being. And this is something common to them all. There is a mysterious unity of existence undergirding the multiplicity of beings. And to take the second issue, we can say that there are diverse categorical modes of being that are generically diverse. Consider the famous Chinese panda bear. Qualities like being black and white are not the same kind of ontological being as quantities like being 1.3 meters tall or actions like eating bamboo. These qualities and quantities and actions all exist or have real existence. So being is something common to them all. Such categorical modes of being can also be good, as in the case of a good height quantity. Bill Carroll has a good height, two meters tall quantity, or good good health, which is a quality of the body. Okay, good height is analogous to good health. Analogous here means both like and unlike, similar and dissimilar. A good quantity of food is analogous to a good quality of human character. It's a good quantity of food. He is a good person. Such modes of goodness are clearly very different, but there is something in common. Goodness suggests perfection, a perfect amount of food, a perfection of character. Modes of goodness can differ not only across various categorical modes, but also within a given mode, such as that of quality or nature. The quality of good piano playing is very different from the quality of good moral character. There are good actions of people, and there are good actions of plants or horses. Goodness, like being, then, transcends any one categorical mode of being and is common to all, And to all modal realizations, all qualities have some goodness or some being. All quantity has some being or some unity. So what is being? And what is goodness? Clearly, being and goodness are concepts that are not reducible to any one kind of being. As if we were to say, only human natures exist, or only plant natures are good. Existence and goodness are in some way analogical notions. We ascribe them to everything that exists. This way of thinking opens us up to the study of the transcendentals, a key topic of medieval Western metaphysics on which Aquinas wrote extensively. Everyone in the Middle Ages writes about the transcendentals. Major medieval topic. The transcendentals are features of being common to all individual substances and common to all the categorical modes of being they transcend any one genus of being and therefore have to be denoted analogically what are we talking about here being unity truth goodness and arguably beauty as well Aquinas I think thinks beauty is a transcendental I will argue beauty is a transcendental everything is beautiful in some way everything is beautiful in some way everything is good in some way, everything is unified. In some way, everything is true. In some way, everything exists. Let us consider each of these briefly. Now, these are massive topics. I'm going very briefly. Just postcards, small conceptual touchstones. Being or existence. Everything we encounter is in some way real, ontologically. And by that, we mean it really exists. Do unicorns really exist? No. Do panda bears really exist? Yes, they do. Is Rebecca really a good person of trustworthy moral character? Yes, she is. Is Andrew really courageous? Experience suggests he is typically pretty brave. We are talking about what is actually the case in reality. What has being or does not have being? Everything exists. Everything that... that we can ascribe substantial form or categorical properties to, exists. Mm-hmm. Is he really American? Yes, it's real. Is she really Chinese? Yes, she is. Is this person really in Wuhan? Yes, they are. Is it really the morning in Wuhan? Yes, it is. Huh? Existence. Second, unity. Everything that exists, insofar as it exists er, sorry, everything that exists, insofar as it exists in some way has unity to it. Now this is a very flexible analogical notion. I am having one thought right now. There is a single panda bear in the zoo. The chair is one shade of red. There is one carton of eggs on the counter consisting of 12 eggs in the carton. There is only one virtue of justice, not two, and so forth. The unity of a plant is different from the unity of a lake or the unity of a human being. But there is a kind of unity to the plant, the lake, and the human being. And amidst the whole multiplicity of things, we can begin to think about the universe. In Latin, uni, one, which is one as well. There's one, How many universes are there? One universe. We can also ask whether there is one origin of the universe, such as God, one God, whether the universe has multiple differentiated causes that are all unique, and thus each one kind of being. There are many different gods. There are 12 gods who created the world, and each god is one god. I don't believe that. But the point is, unity is a concept you use everywhere. You don't think about anything without thinking about unity, implicitly. One shade of red, one cup of tea one human action, one thought, one piano, song on the piano, etc. One universe. Third, truth. The concept of truth denotes the intelligibility present in things insofar as they are capable of being known and informing the intellect. Everything that exists insofar as it exists is in some way intelligible. It contains truth that we come to know. Because this truth has its foundation in the structure of reality, truth is a transcendental that enters into everything. Everything is somehow intelligible and can be understood progressively. Do we know all the truth there is, too, about the depths of the Pacific Ocean? No, but there's truth down there still to be discovered. We need a better submarine. We can spend more time at the bottom of the Pacific Ocean and find out the truth of what is down there. When we ask about the question of what really exists, we are asking the question about what is really true. When we ask the question about what is really true, we are asking the question about what really exists. What is true is is co-extensive with existence. Fourth, goodness. Goodness is the term that denotes the tendencies towards perfection, tendencies towards perfection present in things. Everything that exists tends towards a given kind of activity or behavior that is predictable in accord with its nature and by which it is perfected in a given way. Good phosphorus produces radiation. A good healthy plant puts down roots, sprouts flowers and produces seeds. A good author writes beautiful or informative books. A morally good person performs virtuous actions and cares about other people in just and friendly ways. Goodness, therefore, enters into everything insofar as it has being, but at different levels according to a kind of hierarchy. The, (laughs) The goodness of inorganic natural realities is different and in a way less perfect than the goodness of plants, which can reproduce themselves. Minerals cannot reproduce themselves. I'm taking it as a perfection. Living reproduction is a perfection of the plant. (coughs) Plants have goodness that is less perfect than that of animals who have sense knowledge. We delight in playing with the little dog because the little dog has sense knowledge. He plays with us. There's a goodness in it. And animals have a goodness that is less perfect than that of human beings who can understand the truth and love others through free decisions. There are degrees of goodness inscribed in the universe, according to this understanding of Aquinas, due to the diversity of natural kinds and the degrees of perfection present in natural realities. Aquinas also says that everything that exists and is good is in some way beautiful. Aquinas defines beauty as the splendor or clarity of the form, the claritas in Latin. What does this phrase mean? It means that beauty is the attraction of a given reality, that is the attraction a given reality exerts upon us due to its intelligible order, integrity and proportionality. These are the, the two major concepts for beauty, for Aquinas, integritas and proportionalitas. Consider the example of a beautiful tree. The tree is beautiful because it's diverse parts, the branches, the leaves, the flowers, all exist within a larger order and are integrated into that order. If you remove one of the branches artificially, you cut it off to put up a power line. The tree loses part of its integrity and looks less beautiful. If a soldier suffers a wound in war and loses his arm, it destroys the integrity of the body, and it's ugly. It's ugly. If the tree branches spread out in proportionate ways... In relation to one another with flowers that blossom in colors that are proportionately spaced in relation to one another, then the integral form becomes splendid now interestingly, proportionality is qualitative and quantitative so think about the trees like the branches of the tree okay they're proportioned qual- qual- quantitatively and then the, the the flowers are quantitatively arranged but then there's qualities like the the, the cherry blossom has pink blossoms and a gray uh, background so proportionate color of pink and gray so you have this quantitative proportionality and you have the qualitative proportionality splendid it's beautiful okay uh okay so let's see hold on If the tree has branches spread out in a proportionate way in relation to another with flowers that blossom in colors that are proportionally spaced to one another, then its integral form becomes splendid. It attracts our attention uh, or our intellectual desire to gaze upon it. So, So, too, beauty can be spiritual. As when we say that this person possesses a beautiful mind or a beautiful humility, this means that there is an integrity and proportionate wholeness to the intelligence or to the humility of this person. Again, there is a hierarchy of beauty in things, just like there is a hierarchy of goodness. Inorganic realities can all be said to be beautiful in various ways due to the order of their various perfections. Plants are beautiful in ways that differ from non-living things, and according to various degrees. Beautiful trees, beautiful flowers. There is beauty in the diverse animals that is distinct from that of non-sentient creatures, And there is beauty in human beings, especially due to their moral qualities, their reasoning, and their artistic abilities. Rightly understood, then, Aquinas says that all that exists, all substances with their diverse natural kinds, are in some way existent. They are in some way unified. They are in some way truth bearers or full of intelligibility. They are all subject to outcomes of perfection and therefore can be good in various ways. They are all in some way beautiful. Likewise, we can speak about the absence of transcendental features of reality. They're privations. The universe is a complex world of diverse beings, but there's also the cessation of being, non-being. Things can come into existence and go out of existence. There is ontological unity among things, but there's also multiplicity and real separation between beings. Division. There is ontological goodness in things, but also ontological evil, because evil is a privation of goodness, as when things fall away from their perfection or fail to achieve it. There is beauty in the world, but also ugliness, as when a reality lacks some kind of integrity or right proportion. You could say that politician lacks an integrity of moral character. That politician has a certain moral ugliness. As concerns truth, we cannot say that there is a falsehood in the world itself. There's not the world is not false. Rather, there is intelligibility and non-intelligibility. Some things, um, some some things are inherently more intelligible than others, not simply from our perspective, but in themselves. As when we say that prime matter is less intelligible than form, or that the human being is inherently more metaphysical intelligible than inorganic reality, even if the natural scientist treats them as equivalents, rightly, within the constraints of his own discipline. What really exists in the world around us contains no falsehood, but is only the source of true knowledge. But falsehood can arise in our minds, as when we fail to understand reality as it truly is. Falsehood is real, then, only in intellectual creatures, And falsehood occurs in our minds when our thinking fails to correspond rightly to reality. So if I say, Descartes got a view of substance that's false, that's either true or not true. (laughs) It's truly a falsehood, or it's not truly a falsehood. And if I say Aquinas, what Aquinas says about substance is true. That's either true or false. Falsehood is in the mind. It truly is in the mind. Falsehood is truly in the mind. Okay. Being in actuality and being in potentiality. Having discussed substance and accidents and the transcendental properties of being, we can now consider another major topic in Aquinas' metaphysics, the distinction he draws between being in actuality and being in potentiality. Now, this distinction is not so mysterious because it is something we encounter in the world all the time. There are three modalities of being in an act and being in potentiality mentioned in Aristotle's Metaphysics, Book Nine, and Aquinas comments on each of them, movement, operation, and substantial being in act. Let us consider them uh, each of them briefly in turn. I will focus particularly on the third. First, movement or physical change as being an act. Aquinas understands movement broadly to mean change, Whether that be quantitative change, like the change of size, qualitative change, like the change of temperature or color, or change of place, like changing from Peking to Wuhan. (coughs) It is evident that things around us are constantly subject to change, but not everything is changing all the time in every respect. Instead, the physical world is a place where things are actually changing in some respects, but are also subject to potential change in other respects. If we ask, does change exist, the answer is yes, but with a caveat. Physical change both actually exists and potentially exists in different respects. Certain realities are subject to potential change in ways that other, others are not. You and I could cut ourselves and bleed, while plants cannot bleed. Plants can have their roots pulled out of the ground, potentially, while coal cannot. Coal can be turned into diamond under strong pressures, but water cannot, and so on. Potency for change follows upon the kinds of natures we have, and it's something very real about them. We exist in potency for certain kinds of change, and when those changes take place, they become actual. Qualitative change, quantitative change, change of place. I could potentially be in Peking. I am actually in Wuhan. Okay but there's things that cannot potentially be in Peking. Mars, the planet Mars, cannot potentially be in in Peking. It's not really potentially possible, okay? Operation. The physical world is characterized by the constant actualizations of movement of the kind I've just mentioned. But what about realities with internal organization like plants, animals, and human beings? Here we find movements of a more particular kind, operations by which internal perfections are realized. For example, each of us has the potential to study mathematics and learn to think about complex problems in calculus. Now that's homage to Descartes. When we were very young, this existed in us only in potency, as a capacity of our human nature that was not yet realized or actualized. However, through education and study, our intellect can pass from potency to actualization. Likewise, with more modest vital functions, like seeing. When we are asleep, we are not actually experiencing vision of the external world, but we are in potency to this kind of sensate operation. When we wake from sleep, we pass from potency to actuality, the operation of seeing. Plants might potentially develop flowers, put out seeds, and reproduce. Animals might potentially run as they hunt for food human beings might potentially become philosophers, and so on. Such operations pass from existing in potency to existing in act. The being in potency and being a- in act of our perfective operations follows upon the natures that we have. It's very concrete. It's also true in the modern sciences. If you do an experiment on a physical substance, you change its environment to see what potential activities it might, you might cause. Right? Let's take the phosphorus, and, and make it emit radiation from potency to actuality. Substantial being in act and being in potency. The most fundamental modality of being in act and being in potency is concerned not with movements or operations, but with the very substances of things as such. Each physical reality we encounter comes to be and can cease to be. We ourselves are capable of existing or not existing. There was a time that we did not exist. And there is a time in the future when we will not exist, at least not in the form we do now, Prescinding from the question of whether there is a spiritual soul in the human person that exists after death. This is the most radical form of being in potentiality and being in act we can consider, the fact that every individual substance can exist or not exist. In fact, everything we spoke about above regarding substances and their accidental properties can be re-examined in light of this more fundamental distinction of being in potentiality and being in actuality. Any substance and its accidents can come into being and can in turn also perish or cease to exist. This typically happens in physical realities through substantial generation and substantial corruption. Things come into being through generative change, as when we... Uh, As when a fire is lit in the fireplace Or analogously When a new human being is conceived By his or her parents Things cease existing when they undergo Substantial corruption As their matter is transformed into the being Of another reality As when wood is consumed by fire And only ash remains Or analogously As when the rabbit is eaten by the wolf And undergoes substantial corruption In physical death Essence and existence, essentia in Latin, essentia and esse. It is the consideration of this last modality of being an act and being potentiality, subst- substantial being an act and substantial being in potentiality, that allows Aquinas to develop his famous distinction between essence and existence. Here we pass to a very vertical way of thinking in which we consider the question of why there are things that exist at all. Aquinas' basic claim is that the essence of a given thing is its form and matter. The form and matter of a human being, for example. Okay. That's the essence. Your es- the essence is not just your form. The essence is form and matter as the definition of what it is to be human. To be human is to have a material body. It's essential, it's essential to a human being to have a material body. The existence of the thing is its act of existence. In Latin, actus essendi. Aquinas sees that in any that any given essence can exist or not exist and His claim is that there is a real ontological distinction between the essence the form and matter The singular individual person who has a form and matter and the existence of any created being Note that the affirmation of a distinction between essence and existence does not mean we are dealing with two things My essence is over there. My essay is over here existence and essence no On the contrary, this distinction only ever applies to individual concrete things. This human being here, which can exist or not exist. The basic idea is that the existence of the human being does not belong to it by essence, or simply due to the principles of form and matter. Rather, the existence of the human being is contingent and is caused. The form-matter composite can exist or not exist, and it comes into being due to the activity of other agents consider the argument in this way first everything around us including ourselves exists in actuality but is capable of not existing so existence is not something we can take for granted second nothing is the cause of its own existence we come to be through the causal activity of other realities consequently What each of us is essentially, a human being for example, does not account ultimately for why each of us exists. Not ultimately, not totally. Existence or being in act is something we have by receiving it, not something we have simply always and forever by virtue of the kind of thing we are. But what is true for you or I is true for everything we experience, animals, plants, physical objects. Nothing exists forever and always, simply due to its very nature. Instead, we might say that everything that is, has being, or exists in act, but is in its essence, i.e. in what it is, something that receives being, that can be or not be. It's very realistic. Here's another way to think about the argument. Everything we experience is something that truly exists. So existence is common to all things that are real. What is existence then? Clearly it is not something limited to just one kind of being, as if we were to say that only tigers exist, and therefore existence is identical with tigers, or identical with automobiles, or stars, or human beings. Being is a transcendental. It is not something limited to a particular genus of being at all. This means that the existence that is common to all things cannot be identified with a particular kind of substance or a quality or a quantity or a relation or an action and so forth. All these features of reality exist and we should not say that only quantities exist or only qualities exist. But this means that existence is not identical with the essence of any given thing Or its accidental properties because if it were then anything that were not that essence or those accidents would have to be denied existence if existence was identical with being human or instead with quantity then anything that was not human would not exist or anything that was not a quantity would not exist but this is nonsense so Since existence is present in all that is real, including all kinds of substances and all kinds of accidents, this means that existence is not identical with any particular essential determination. Existence is distinct from essence. Just to repeat, we are not saying here... We are not saying that existence is something outside of ordinary realities we see or that existence is a thing separate from the particular realities around us. We are saying the contrary, in a sense, in each individual thing, having a given essence, this tree here, this human being there, uh, the actual existence of the thing is the most intimate interior aspect of the reality. It's being in actuality this tree here or that person there really exists actually and this real existence in the thing itself is a principle distinct from its essence by which the essence of that reality has actual existence why is this important What this way of thinking allows us to do is speak in a realistic way about the problem of the one and the many in the order of being In our world there are many things that truly exist and that are truly distinct from one another So we encounter a great multiplicity of beings all around us at the same time All that is real everything around us truly exists So there's something common to all things they all have being but at the same time Existence is not merely a thing like a form-matter composite, a human being, a plant. To think this would be idealist as we find in Plato's theory of forms where being and the good are something distinct from our physical world. Being is not a separate form distinct from the world, nor should we think that the existence found in all things is really one as Parmenides mistakenly believed. The multiplicity of things is real, Against Plato and Parmenides we must say that there is a multiplicity of beings in the world But that they are all that they they but that they all really do have something in common Something that both unites and separates them. They all have existence By virtue of which they all have something in common and by virtue of which they are all truly distinct your existence is not my existence if I go out of existence you still exist But the existence in us, the being, is something in common. So, existence is something, first, found in all things. Second, not something identical with any one essence or with one essential kind of thing. And third, something that makes each thing truly distinct from the others, but also related to all the others. Aquinas's philosophy of the real distinction of existence and essence in things allows us to account for these three features of the world in a realistic way. Everything has existence, but nothing is merely identical with being as such. Instead, being is contracted or limited by the particular nature that exists. The being of a bird is finite and limited. It is not identical with all that exists nor is the being of a tree, or a man. The act of existence we find in each individual thing makes it like all other existing things, but makes it distinct from all other existing things. Another way to say this is to say that all things that we encounter participate in existence, participate in existence, but none of them is identical with existence as such, nor are any of them the ultimate cause of their own existence, Instead, they receive their existence and are truly real, but do not exist by absolute ontological necessity. There are limited instantiations of being and are not... uh, Sorry, all the realities around us. They are limited instantiations of being and are not synonymous with the plenitude of being. So now we turn in the last part of the lecture to... Arguments for a transcendent first cause, God. At this stage, we can consider Aquinas' arguments that the physical world of beings is is only ultimately intelligible if there is something beyond the world of material beings, a transcendent immaterial reality that gives existence to all other realities that exist. Of course, here we are speaking about Aquinas' philosophical arguments for the existence of God, As we will see eventually, Aquinas thinks that monotheism has a kind of ultimate explanatory value for understanding the nature of the cosmos and the human person. At this stage, however, we will consider briefly a few of the arguments for the existence of God which develop organically from the metaphysical principles we have considered thus far. Now, we should begin by making clear two larger methodological points. These are super important, super important. The first is textual. It is often thought that Aquinas offers precisely five philosophical arguments for the existence of God because there are the five famous argumentations given at the beginning of the Summa Theologiae, Question 2, Article 3 of the first part. However, the truth is that Aquinas offers at least nine or ten arguments for the existence of God which one finds spread out through his work from the Dei Ente and Essentia to the Summa Contra Book 1 and 3, to his Commentary on the Metaphysics, Book 12, to his Commentary on the Physics, Book 8, to the Prologue of the Commentary on the Gospel of John, and in other locations. Furthermore, these arguments all presuppose some familiarity with the principles of metaphysics we have sketched out above. That is to say, they are not meant to be interpreted without some prior familiarity with the philosophy of Aquinas and Aristotle, On the contrary, they presuppose such knowledge, and without it, the arguments can seem quite arbitrary or unintelligible or just strange. Second, Aquinas differs considerably in his argumentative structure on this topic from Anselm or Bonaventure or Descartes, Malebranche or Leibniz. As we will see below, this makes his argumentation very different from the kind of argumentation criticized by Immanuel Kant And Martin Heidegger all of these thinkers uh, both the Anselm Descartes Malebranche Leibniz and the critics Kant and Heidegger all of these thinkers engage in some way or another with the so-called ontological argument of Anselm which appeals to the necessity of the existence of God based upon the very idea or definition of God as a perfect being if one conceives rightly of a perfect being one realizes that that being must of its nature exist. And so one thinks rightly of what it means to speak of God. And so once one thinks rightly of what it means to speak of God, one must also acknowledge that God exists. Because the idea of a perfect being includes its existence. This is Anselm. Aquinas rejects this argument. This is very important. Aquinas rejects this argument. He is wary, in fact, of any a priori argument for the existence of God that would be based on definitions alone, as if God were a per se nota in Latin, a reality known intuitively and necessarily just from consideration of the idea of God. You might say that Aquinas' metaphysics of God is more agnostic than this. The existence of God must be demonstrated or inferred a posteriori, as one discerns a hidden cause of a manifest effect the metaphorical comparison here is to that of smoke that one perceives in the forest the smoke is evident and the forest the smoke is evident and the forest is evident but the hidden cause of the smoke is not manifest one infers that there is a hidden cause of the smoke a forest fire aquinas thinks that all valid arguments for the existence of god are like this a posteriori in nature since they begin from the world around us and discern in the world around us that all the things that exist are in some way caused by others and are ontologically dependent, but there cannot be an infinite actual sequence of interdependent causes in which all of them are only ever explained by reference to another upon whom the, they, they depend. Consequently, the existence of the real world around us and ourselves... And the fact of our ontological interdependence and imperfection reveals to us indirectly the necessary existence of an unseen transcendent cause, God, who is the giver of being to all things that exist. So in short, Aquinas thinks that the existence of God is inferred, not presumed, and that this inference is demonstrative, not conjectural or hypothetical. So he is somewhere between a thinker like Descartes who thinks the knowledge of God is given a priori prior to all considerations of external reality through consideration of the idea of God, and a thinker like Richard Swinburne, today in Oxford, who thinks the arguments for the existence of God are based on inference from the n- inference from the nature of external reality, but are merely conjectural or probabilistic. Aquinas thinks the arguments are inferential, but that the arguments are certain and demonstrative, not conjectural. Let's consider three such arguments here briefly. Here we will give just, just give overviews of the arguments. It's very basic. okay. And I'm just going to take three. The argument from form, matter, composition, and the potency of movement. Consider the first argument for the existence of God from Summa Theologiae Prima Pars, Question 2, Article 3, which Aquinas says is based on what is most evident to our ordinary experience, the existence of motion or ontological change. This argument appeals to the first modality of being in potency and being in act that we discussed above, the capacity of one thing to be changed or altered by another ontologically. The premise is the following. Everything that we experience in the world is physical, and as a physical reality, it is somehow subject to change. Change, or motion, can be considered to be of, of three kinds. Change of quantity, quality, or location. Secondly, everything we experience is constantly being altered by its environment and by other physical beings that act upon it. In other words, there are characteristics of potency for change and actuality of change, that qualify the very being of every physical reality. And second part of that, any such reality only ever exists in actual dependence upon other physical realities that act upon it so as to make it the kind of actually changing reality that it is. You may not like this, but you are currently rotating around the sun. And even if you wish the sun to be rotating around you, it is not true. You are being changed. To take an example, all of us are undergoing change at this current time because sunlight is warming our bodies through the medium of the atmosphere, and this is due to the forces that maintain the earth in movement around the sun, and so on. We are part of what you might call an interdependent web of physical beings that depend upon one another to be the kinds of beings they currently are under the influence of mutually reinforced physical alterations. So thirdly then, If we consider a historical chain of such physical dependencies, one can posit, Aquinas thinks, one can posit an infinite chain of of such beings going back in time. It's not an argument from history. It is not an argument from cosmic history. Before the Big Bang, perhaps there was something prior that was physical that caused the Big Bang, and something before that, and something before that, forever and ever and ever. Aquinas thinks that's a completely coherent idea. Aquinas does not think it is possible to demonstrate philosophically whether the world began to be in time or whether it is eternal in the sense of existing always and forever. But if one considers causal changes of dependency actually and not historically, then Aquinas thinks it is not possible to posit an actual infinite chain of interdependent limited physical beings now. In actuality, now. Each of the beings in such a given chain of interdependent beings would depend upon another, just because it is a physical being subject to ontological alteration from others. We cannot adequately account for actual physical dependency only by recourse to a further remote agent that is itself ontologically dependent upon others. A physical being is always subject to being changed by other physical beings, even when it acts upon them. If you posit an infinite chain of them actually in the world, you get to the end of the chain. There's just one more being changed and altered ontologically, therefore dependent on others. There would need to be something further beyond this to explain all of them ontologically. Consequently, there must exist something that is not physical, an immaterial reality that is the ultimate first source of the change and movement we find in the universe. And this is what the religious traditions call God. Aristotle calls it the unchanged changer or the unmoved mover. Now note right away, there are various questions we could pose about this argument. Does the argument still work in light of modern physics? Does the argument work in light of what we know about inertia? Even if the argument can be made to work, does it really allow us to conclude to the existence of God as creator of all that exists, or even to the existence of only one God? Or does it merely seek to demonstrate the existence of something immaterial? Modern Thomist philosophers typically engage with all these questions, which I cannot treat here due to limited time, but I will only say the following in passing. As long as we concede something like the Thomistic concept of substances, even at the micro level, if one were to posit, for example, that the only true substances are atoms, then I think the argument can be defended within the context of the modern scientific age. The existence of inertia is not a fundamental problem for the argument, though it raises special considerations. Yes, the argument does conclude only to the existence of immaterial reality and does not tell us very much, if anything, about the immaterial reality in question, including whether that reality is one or several. That is why this form of argumentation is for Aquinas only a very embryonic beginning for thinking metaphysically about god it needs to be complemented by a number of other later considerations second the argument from existence essence composition a second argument is found in the de ente et essentia on being and essence in english which aquinas wrote when he was 25 years old it is based on the real distinction of existence and essence that we spoke about above And therefore appeals implicitly to the third modality of being in actuality and being in potentiality that was discussed that pertaining to substances they can come into being and they can cease to exist and here is an extensive paragraph now whatever belongs to a thing is either caused by the principles of its nature as the ability to laugh in a man or comes to it from some extrinsic principle as light in the air from the influence of the Sun But it cannot be that the existence of a thing is caused by the form or quiddity of that thing. Quiddity means essence. Quidditas, essence. I say caused as by an efficient cause, because then something would be its own cause and would bring itself into existence, which is impossible. Nothing we experience is the cause of its own existence. It is therefore necessary that every such thing, the existence of which is other than its nature, have its existence from some other thing. And because everything which exists by virtue of another is led back as to its first cause, to that which exists by virtue of itself, it is necessary that there be some thing which is the cause of the existence of all things, because it is existence alone." Otherwise there would be an infinite regress among causes since everything which is not existence alone has a cause of its existence as has been said. It is clear, therefore, every such thing is clear for that every such thing, every such thing has existence from the first being, which is existence alone or is its own existence. And this is the first cause, which is God. Now, the argument here actually is simple direct and vertical Nothing we experience in the world is the efficient cause of its own existence Nothing exists by necessity Nor is any reality we experience identical with all that exists with all being We may say that each thing receives its existence from another finite dependent thing But we cannot plausibly posit an infinite series of such radically dependent causes because even if we do, the causes in question must themselves be explained by appeal to further causes. I depend upon the sun for my existence as it heats the earth. But the sun does not cause its own existence, nor does anything else that can be or not be. And indeed, the sun at some point did not exist and at some point in the future will not exist. Consequently, one must posit the existence of a transcendent giver of being who gives existence to all that is, the creator of all things. This argument for the existence of God is much more radical than the first and leads to a much more acute claim about monotheism. Not only is God immaterial, but God is also he who is, he who possesses being of himself eternally and necessarily. It is he who gives being to all that exists insofar as it exists at all. And it is he who sustains all things in existence in their actual being. God exists by necessity. God gives being to all things. God sustains all things in being. Our being is received from God. All things that are created receive being, have being, but they are not being. They are not just equivalent to all that exists. Okay. The final argument is from the tendency towards perfection and teleology. A final argument can be considered based upon the second modality of being in actuality and being in potentiality discussed above, that which is concerned with operation, operations that tend toward perfections. We have noted that there are all kinds of natural potencies in physical non-living things and in living things. White phosphorus has the capacity to emit radiation. Plants have the capacity to put down roots and put out leaves and flowers. Animals have the capacity to have offspring and nurture their young. Human beings have the capacity to seek the truth and make deliberative decisions to pursue happiness or to love and care for other human beings. There are discernible ontological tendencies in the world around us then, and these tendencies inscribed in things give them diverse notes of perfection or of ontological fulfillment. The plant becomes more perfectly, more perfect ontologically when it puts out flowers and seeds, while the human being becomes more perfect ontologically when it finds the truth, or when it becomes happy and virtuous. So the world is characterized by modes of being toward actuality, of being towards operative perfection. I am referring here to teleological orientation in things, of course. Now, here's the key thing. None of us is the author of this tendency of being inscribed in things. And yet it is real, orderly, and intelligible. The ordered world of operative perfections that exists in reality is diverse and pre-exists each of us. You and I did not make the plants or the minerals, nor did they make us. Indeed, we are all part of this ordered world together. Furthermore, as we have seen, matter alone matter alone, cannot account for such order since matter depends upon form for its inherent determination. Once you understand that, you have a purification of materialism. The material principle cannot provide adequate explanation for orienti- inclination towards perfection in things. You will not be able to explain it that way. Accidental encounters between material forms cannot account for the order because accidental chance events are real, but they always only happen to realities that themselves imply some degree of formal determination. That is to say, chance events only exist within a larger system of order. There's no pure, raw chance all the way down. Chance occurs within an order. I am going to the store. You are going to the store. We meet by chance. Going to the store is an ordered intentional action for both of us. And so the chance encounter occurs within an ordered world. But no natural form in the world, be it non-living or living, can account for the order inscribed within the being of all realities in the world. Consequently, one must posit a transcendent source of the teleological order found in the world. This reality is not subject itself to progressive perfection through engagement with other realities, because in that case, it would itself be a dependent being needing others to reach its perfection. It would itself be authored in its inclination to perfection. It would be caused in its inclination to perfection. It has no history of progressive improvement by dependence upon others, but is itself eternally perfect. This is what the religious traditions call God. In, the first, in our first argument, now I just did it very rapidly, okay? These are very rapid, quick sketches. In our first argument, we claimed that God is immaterial, non-physical. In the second, we claim that God is the unilateral giver of being to all other realities and is himself indebted to none for his existence. In the third argument, we claim that God is a kind of perfect operation that is not subject to diminution, or progressive perfection. After making arguments of this kind at greater length than I have done here, Aquinas goes on to argue that God is in some real sense personal by analogy to our human spiritual operations of intellect and will. That is to say, God is an eternal life of immaterial operation of wisdom and love. It is this hidden transcendent mystery of God who is at the origins of the world as we know it He who gives being to all things and who sustains them in being. Aquinas thinks human beings may have only a limited, indirect, philosophical knowledge of God. He says that one may come to know that God exists and what God is not, but that our positive knowledge of what God is remains very imperfect and has to be constructed by thinking about God analogically from the consideration of creatures. He does discuss divine attributes at length, divine simplicity, perfect divine perfection, divine goodness, divine infinity, eternity, immutability, unity, divine truth, and divine love. But in all of this, Aquinas embraces a kind of paradox. On the one hand, the human being can think in constructive and realistic ways about the attributes of God and the nature of God. Aquinas thinks there is a genuine philosophical contemplation of God that it is possible to obtain. On the other hand, God remains naturally enshrouded in darkness or hiddenness from direct view, even to the philosopher, because God is distinct from the world and in a sense utterly transcendent of it, even if the world does bear some real witness to him, just as a transcendent cause is discernible from its effects, but cannot be known fully, adequately, and proportionately by a consideration of those effects.